Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Utah Film Pod. My name is Josh Terry. I will be your host, and I am joined by Mark Larocco. Mark, welcome to episode 60 of the Utah Film Pod. How are you doing? 60. We've done it. Doing great. We've done it. Yeah. That was the goal, right? Yeah, 60. We're done. I can't remember what we were going to do to celebrate, but it's on. How's June treating you? It's, oh, it's going awesome. Finished our Good. deck. We're, kids are out of school completely now, and we're just we're deep into summer, it feels like. Yeah, it's moving fast. I need to start making some plans, otherwise my summer is going to be in the rear view mirror. Mm-hmm. Along with all these movies we're seeing, how are you feeling about the movie so far? Well, so far, not super great. I mean... I, I really haven't seen a, I guess I would say a great movie this year, um, other than yeah. movies that were not released in 2023. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen some, some pretty good ones and one that I liked quite a bit. And then I've seen a few movies that I liked quite a lot that were not released this year. So it's oh. uh, been an interesting year, but you know, we've got a lot of ones I'm still looking forward to, to ahead of us. Well, that's good. That's good. I was watching a YouTube review uh, from a critic that I that I follow, and he did a he posted a review of the Covenant, and I was just thinking that oh yeah, that's that was one of the better movies so far this year. Mm. I think that one and Air are probably the two that stand out to me so far. As we are approaching the halfway mark of 2023 but we've got new stuff to talk about Mm -hmm. um so we got this coming weekend this coming weekend as he said on june 14th um we got the flash another comic book movie big surprise another comic book movie superheroes on the big screen it's been a while at least like a week or two since another one of those came out um so we got dc this time we got the flash uh, who we remember, this is still, I, you know, I am not super fluent with all of this, but my understanding is that this year they are trying to close out a lot of the Zack Snyder era DC characters mm-hmm. and actors stuff and transition over to James Gunn. Is that right? I, I believe so. Um I th- yeah. Yeah, that's what I've heard as well. So so we just had Shazam, Fury of the Gods, which was closing out because I don't think there's going to be any more of those. I don't think. Um The Flash is also a Zack Snyder era thing because this is the Flash, the 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 Barry Allen character played by Ezra Miller, right? Mm-hmm. And he was in well, I think technically he made an appearance in Batman v Superman, but his real first arrival was in Justice League a couple of years ago. This is his movie, kind of. It's just called The Flash, but I thought this one was very much a Justice League 2 or Justice League 1.5 or something like that, depending on whether you consider the... Uh, the theatrical release and the Zack Snyder cut is two different movies. Did you ever see the Zack Snyder cut? I never did. No, it was good. It was, it was actually pretty good. It's very long. It's four hours long and, and it's shot as I wanted to say it was almost like a one-to-one. This probably wasn't one-to-one exactly, but the, the aspect ratio was very squarish. Oh, and so you're watching it on a widescreen TV and you got the big black bars on either side. 
instead of top top and bottom like a lot of times. Um, so it was interesting. Wow. But if 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 you have an interest in these movies and haven't seen it, I would recommend it because it was pretty good. Okay. You have kind of a you have kind of a concerned look on your face. Why, Mark, why would I'm, Zach? I'm looking at you in the zoom. Why would Zach Snyder do that? Why a one to one ratio? Um. My first guess would be it had something to do with IMAX, hmm. but I don't think IMAX is quite that square. So I don't know. Hmm. I think he's just, maybe, maybe he really, really liked the lighthouse and felt like, you know, square one-to-one -one aspect ratio, black and white, Lots of surrealist imagery. That's the way I want to go. That's the wave of the future. <laughs> well, I'm just, he's in his mind, he's like, how can I get people to watch this movie? Hmm, let me think <laughs> of like a black and white disturbing two-hander about two guys who go crazy in a lighthouse. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> which probably made $2 million. I don't know. But yeah. Uh, um, the Flash, new DC movie, Ezra Miller. Kind of pitched like a standalone, but it's really not because lots of other Justice League people are in there. And I'm not going to tell you all the names because that would not be responsible for me as a critic. Um, I will tell you, I mean, there's really not going to be any way to review or even give a basic review of this without giving a little bit of spoilers. But if you've been watching any of the trailers or any of the promotional spots, you probably already know this stuff anyway. So mm -hmm. I'm going to proceed from that, that point. The basic idea of The Flash is so so if you're not familiar with the Barry Allen character, he's that's the you know the kid who was the Flash. Um, his haunted backstory is also parent related, where his father was accused of killing his mother, and so his mother is dead, and his father is in prison and trying to prove his innocence, and so. Barry has this driving passion to want to, you know, uh, save his, you know, or, or prove his father's innocence. Um, in the process of a movie opening action set piece where he winds up saving a bunch of people from a, uh, a collapsing hospital, as part of the process of him saving the people in the hospital, he has to do some miraculous work in a maternity ward and the babies are CGI and they look creepy. Okay. And that is my main takeaway from the flash is that the <laughs> CGI babies look creepy. Um, anyway. Okay. So, so this opening sequence in the process of running around and doing this, Barry determines that if he goes fast enough, he can actually travel back in time. I'm not really sure how this works. The way they depict it visually is a little strange, to be honest. But long story short, The Flash is about Barry Allen trying to go back in time to save his mother's life, get his father, you know, prevent his father from going to prison, and create kind of his happy family type thing. Um, that's really what it's about. That's the main idea. And... There are some real tonal similarities to Back to the Future because, again, if you've, if you've seen him in, in other movies, uh, you know, Ezra Miller plays the Flash. He's, he's kind of comic relief. He's very off the wall, very zany, has a lot of kind of bubbly personality. So to kind of capture that, 
as you know he's kind of like bungling around in the chaos of the past there's a real back to the future vibe like even the music starts to feel a little bit like is it alan silvestri who did the back to the future score i think Um, it it sounds yeah it sounds a lot like that Mm -hmm. and unfortunately it's one of those things where when you're thinking a lot about a really really good example of how to do something in a particular genre it just has a way of reinforcing to you that the movie you're watching isn't quite as good. Yeah. Um, which is not to say, so, so everything I'm saying about this movie so far is negative and I don't want to, I really enjoyed a lot of things about this movie. I wanted to like it a lot more and I did like it mostly up until the end. Um, so once, once Barry goes back in time, he gets, he goes back about 10 years and then realizes that he's not in the past that he remembers. And so suddenly we're getting into the multiverse thing again. Mm-hmm. And we realize that he's gone back in the past, but he's also kind of triggered some kind of an alternate timeline that isn't just impacting the new future, but also has its own past. And they, they do this thing to kind of explain it using spaghetti Um, which I'm not even going to attempt to describe here. Mm -hmm. But again, the long and short of it is that he tries to go back in time to fix his own past, but he winds up in some alternate timeline with different characters, such as a different Batman. Because in his regular world, Ben Affleck is Batman. But when he goes back in time, he discovers that now it's Michael Keaton. Because if you've seen the promos you know that one of the big selling points about this movie is that Michael Keaton is back to play Batman, which is one of the reasons I did like this movie because I love the Michael Keaton Batman movies. They were very, you know, not, it wasn't purely a nostalgia thing. I mean, those were the Batman movies I remember as a kid, but they still are really fun. And I just, I love Michael Keaton. I think he's, he's been one of my favorite actors for a long, long time. And so it's really fun to see him doing his thing. Um, Also, Ezra Miller effectively has to play two different roles because he encounters his younger self and they're both interacting throughout the movie. So, so that's kind of a unique and interesting challenge that has to be dealt with. Um, other characters inv- are involved and maybe I won't, again, I mean, I think you probably are going to know who some of them are, but I'll just kind of let it go because it's not critical to my assessment mm-hmm. of this movie. Again, this is going to come down to me griping about the multiverse because Back to the Future, as zany and off the wall as it is, is a real clean, streamlined movie. It's a real tight story. Everything ties up really well. It's very focused, very clean. And The Flash is just yet another reminder of how trying to interpret time travel or something like the multiverse in a movie form is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And this gets messy and kind of not just silly, but unnecessarily confusing. I think that the, the basic idea here of him going back to try to save his mom and winding up in an alternate timeline, I think that's a fun concept. I think there's some real potential there, but the way that they try to write themselves out of it, just doesn't work for me and Mm. and the more the third act went along i just felt like no 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 you're just you're killing this you're just killing this and 
there's also a tendency, and I'm not going to be specific here because, you know, this is very kind of spoiler sensitive. Um, because there is a lot of humor in the movie, there are times where they use jokes in a very, you know, obvious way because they want to kind of keep, keep the humor, keep the light tone. But one of the jokes that they use towards the end feels like it undercuts the entire movie. Mm. It makes you say, well, wait a minute. So the whole movie was just, what? Yeah. And so, so unfortunately, I really did want to like this one. And I think that I would still generally, I would still generally say that I enjoyed it more than a lot of other kind of recent franchise superhero comic book type movies. Mm-hmm. But they just couldn't stick the landing. They just couldn't pull it off. And I was, I felt a little bit let down. Oh. So did you like the first half or the first two thirds? So the first two thirds, I would say I put up with the stuff that I didn't like as much because the stuff I liked was more enjoyable. But then things got so messy towards the end that I just kind of had to throw my hands up and say, I hate the multiverse. I hate, hate, hate the multiverse. Stop doing the stupid multiverse. Because nothing means anything. Mm-hmm. Nothing has... I mean, my big gripe... And, and you know, I have enjoyed so many of the Marvel movies and even a lot of the DC movies. I just said I like the Michael Keaton Batman movies. I like the comic book movies. They're fun. I like the superheroes. But, but... They are always going to be held back by the fact that their stakes can never really carry as much weight. Because how do you kill, you know, when you've got Thor and you've got the Incredible Hulk and you've got Superman? Like, they can't die. Yeah, they kill them, but then they bring them back, right? And so all of that is tough enough to deal with. But then you throw in this multiverse thing, and it just compounds the problem where, okay, well, so it doesn't work here, but we'll just go to this other universe where it's fine. And Mm -hmm. it just, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this is what ultimately destroys my nerd cred, (laughs) but I'm getting way burned out on it. Yeah. Which I've said before, so nothing new, right? I mean, I know. And I I get kind of tired of it, too. I guess... Maybe it's the novelty of it. Partially, it's the novelty wearing off a little bit. Um, because, I could, as I've said before, the Spider-Man uh, Far No Way Home. I mean, I loved yeah. that. I, and, mm-hmm. and it wasn't really a multiverse movie in terms of just continually going through different multiverses. It was just more like a few characters from an other universes coming here. And most of the movie right. takes place here, you know, quote, unquote. So... I, I just and I, it was really cool to see all three of the Spider-Men over the last twenty years all together mm-hmm. in a movie in a way that sort of made sense. I mean, if you're going totally to do agree. that, um, yep. And then the Spider-Verse movies are, yep. You know, the quite good and 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 new and fresh and comic booky, you know, comic mm-hmm. book style. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like the, it does change the stakes and. It, I mean, I guess you could argue it's the same thing with the time machine movies, the time travel movies, not even multiverse movies, but if, if you have a time mm-hmm. machine and you can go back and fix things or whatever, you know. Um, but Back to the Future, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen any movie do it better than Back to the Future. Um, right, and I think that's I think that's what is so 
illustrative mm-hmm. is that the the movies that stumble with this stuff are so obvious because we've seen the same ideas done so much better. Mm-hmm. I I think you you pointed out uh, No Way Home, especially the first Spider Verse movie. I didn't feel like the new one did this quite as well, but I felt like the first you know Into the Spider Verse. Those worked just for the way you described, which is that you just took characters from the other parallel dimensions, you know, and then brought them into one place. Mm-hmm. So everything was still very focused, very streamlined, very contained. the The idea was there, the concept was there, and the threat was there, but it didn't, you know, it just it felt it still felt compact. Yeah. And, but then these other ones, and and time travel again, Back to the Future really showed how to do it mm-hmm. and these other movies they just and it's so funny too because endgame was the same way as the as the flash where they they almost kind of like stopped the movie for five minutes so that they can explain their own theory of well this is how time travel actually works mm-hmm. and you think that you're just starting a new timeline that goes forward but it actually goes backward too and you're just kind of ah is it time for me to retire, Mark? <laughs> no, I think it's just time for us to find... It's hard. We, we got to find those like entertaining, sometimes prestige or art house, adult dramas that are, or comedies, but that are not um, co- you know, superhero movies. They're just, like I said, there's just so many. There's a, there's a glut of them. They're, they're all over, and they're going to just keep doing them as long as they're doing well. Now... We have seen a dip in the, some of the Marvel products, like where they're not yeah. making as much as they, they thought. Um, but there's movies out there. I mean, there's there's going to be movies out there that are good and that are we, you know. And like I said, I I've seen three movies in the past two weeks that I just thought loved quite a bit. Thought they were all great, but none of them came out this year. So um, oh, there's going to be some. <laughs> there's going to be some. You know. Yeah. Sure. Well, speaking of which. Is is this a is this a good time to segue to our our second movie? Yeah, I think we have to. I think uh, <laughs> I think I think we're going to let you take the lead on that one since I've been complaining about the Flash for the last fifteen minutes. Okay, so I'm going to try to just give the basic plot of this movie called Asteroid City, Wes Anderson's newest movie. Um, this is his eleventh film, and uh, wow, has he done that many? Yeah. He has. Wow. And okay. if we, if you know of the Wes Anderson style, he's famous for, uh, you know, his lateral camera movements, his whip pans, his zooms, his use of color. He has a very wide color palette. Um, you know, interesting, fun, often sad or overly hyper-intelligent characters that are played by famous actors, you know, he just fills his movie with an ensemble of like the who's who in Hollywood each time he makes a movie. Um, and some of them have just small parts, you know, maybe they're only in five scenes or something. Yeah. Um, and then he, anyway, so that's kind of some of the, the, the common, the tropes or, or the, the things that Wes Anderson's mm-hmm. known for. Um, Very symmetrical. Symmetrical. Framing. You're correct. Yeah. Symmetrical framing and, um, Often they're, they're billed as comedies, but not very many of them are just laugh out loud or raucous or slapstick comedies. They're, they're more drama comedies, I guess, or movies that have some comic elements to them, but aren't just funny the whole, the whole way through. This movie is, uh, it takes place in 1955, 
and it's presented as as like a, a Playhouse ninety or Twilight Zone uh, TV show that's being that's a, a play where all the, the actors are staging this this play or or production called Asteroid City. But then when you sh when you see Asteroid City, it's 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 a movie. It's not like we're watching a stage the entire movie, you know, um, and it's a, a conference of these people called junior stargazers. It's almost like young, you know, brilliant up and coming scientists slash child prodigies that are gathering for a, a, an anniversary of a, a crater or a, of a, I guess, an alien landing in what was it like September 23rd, 5000 BC or something like that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and so what we do is we, you know, we're introduced to all the people that, that descend on this town. And it's a very small town on like, I think the Nevada, California border. Uh, maybe there's 87 people in the town. So many of the people in the movie are actually outsiders from the town, just there for a short period of time. Um, played by, uh, you know, Scarlett Johansson, Jeffrey Wright, Jason Schwartzman, Tom Hanks. Um, as I said, many famous, you know, Oscar winning Steve actors. Carell. Steve Carell's in it, uh, Tilda Swinton. And uh, so, you know, what happens, and I, I'm not going to give away too much of the plot that, you know, as there is one, um, it's that <laughs> they're, they're commemorating this, this, this alien landing or, or this contact from, from outer space, but also they're going to be giving awards away to these junior stargazers. Um, and then there's potentially uh, an actual alien uh, invasion. I, I don't want to say an invasion, but an experience encounter. where an alien is seen. Let's call it an encounter. Yeah, an encounter, a close encounter. And so then the town has to go into quarantine, which I think is a little bit of a statement on the COVID-19 lockdowns we all experienced starting three years ago. But okay. um, anyway, that's the basic plot. I mean, Star Scarlett Johansson plays an actress who's, who's in the town. Um, Jason Schwartzman, he plays a father of four, three of them are triplet daughters who are kind of jokingly referred to as, as witches. And, uh, and his, uh, before the movie even begins, the, his wife has died and he has to figure out how to tell his children. Um, their general Jeffrey Wright plays a general Steve Carell is a motel manager. Um, and anyway, it's just, there's di different scenes with each of them and, um, it's that's kind of the general plot. Um, yeah. I did not like this movie, <laughs> and so Josh, <laughs> you and I talked after this movie, and I and yes, I remember when the movie when it first started, I actually had a big grin on my face. I had a big smile. Yeah. I loved the opening. Yeah. I liked the the song they were using. I don't remember the San Fernando song and. And the way it just they they introduced the the characters, which is something that Wes Anderson likes to do. I mean, each for example, in Royal Tenenbaums, each of the each of the actors are introduced as who they're playing, and it's like extreme close-ups of their face, um, and so it kind of helps get you oriented a little bit. Okay, who's her? Who's her? Here's who we're going to be seeing, you know? Right. Um, and there's uh, not that exact same style in this movie, but there's sort of a, an oral introduction of of many of the characters by uh, Brian Cranston, who plays kind of a Rod Serling-like figure um, right. as a narrator of, of this asteroid city. And so I, there were certain things I liked about it. I mean, I was like, okay, well, I recognize that this is a Wes Anderson thing to have a, 
story within a story. You know, we can't just watch a normal movie. It has to be like a story told by someone else, maybe told by someone else. Um, I think there were like four layers to the Grand Budapest Hotel. And so, but then as the movie went on, I'm, 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 I'm thinking, okay, I'm seeing all of the fancy Wes Anderson stuff that we see. Um, and some of it was kind of funny and it make you, makes you chuckle. You know, there's a scene where Brian Cranston is in a scene he's not supposed to be in and everybody kind of stops right. and looks at him and the camera pans over to him and then pans back to the actors, almost as if we're looking at Scarlett Johansson being like, what are you doing here, Brian? You know, but it wasn't, it was his, his character in the movie. That made me laugh out loud, but it didn't really have anything to do with the movie or with the plot, right? Um, there's, so anyway, uh, I, there's one of the, a few of the things that I didn't, I didn't like about it is that I felt like, well, there's these establishing shots of the town of Asteroid City, and they're like, we're going to show off the whole set that we just built for this fake town in 1955. And I've never seen such a set of like just hyper self-aware, almost pretentious, pretentious establishing shots in a movie. And I was like, okay, I'll, I can put up with that. Um, and then we we get into this sort of subplot where there's a, a dead mother, and he has to figure out how to tell the kids. And and Tom Hanks is the grandfather. He's the father mm -hmm. of the of the woman who's died. And it reminded me of Royal Tenenbaums, you know, with Gene Hackman. And Ben Stiller and his kids, and um, which I thought was done much better in, in that movie. And then the way that the the actors are supposed to deliver their lines, it started to grate on me because they have this sort of flat, monotone way, many of them, of speaking, um, and it's it's almost like he's asking them to do as little as possible with the exception of a few. I actually thought Scarlett Johansson had a lot more range in what, what she was doing in this movie. Um, and it's, and we've seen it before. We've seen it before in a lot of these, a lot of these movies. Yeah. Um, I just felt like there wasn't as much substance as there was style. And, and maybe that's what people like about, about Wes Anderson. And they're okay with that. There wasn't very much charm. There wasn't as much humanity as I would have liked. And, and again, I get that these are not things that Wes Anderson is maybe known for. Um, but it was just almost like an empty shell of human-like characters that were not quite human, that were, were made aware through much of the movie that they're actors acting in a mm -hmm. play slash movie. And, um, you know, I'm just like, what is this in service of? Like, what's the purpose of it? Is it, I'm, you know, and so I don't know. I, I, yeah. I'm not saying I hated the movie. I certainly, like, the color palette was amazing. The costuming and, and the sets were actually really good. Like, the 1955 styles you see uh, yeah. were probably just dead on, you know, and, and, and pretty interesting. But I just, there I need a, a really lot more than that. There was a really unique personality to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I don't no, know. That's, what, what that was one of the things thoughts? that I liked, too. Yeah, sorry. Um. I'm going to agree and disagree at the same time. Okay. I also enjoyed the the typical Anderson tropes and visuals and style and quirks and all that. Um, you mentioned the set design, which I found really interesting and probably intentional if the idea was that this was supposed to be some kind of a you know adaptation of a stage play because. 
it it's basically all set outdoors, mm-hmm. but it looks like it could be a stage setup. That's true. Because I mean, it, it looked very much like Monument Valley, mm-hmm. but it was not shot in Monument Valley. There are just rock formations in the distance that look like they are shaped like they could be buttes in a place like Monument Valley, but yeah. they're very obviously Fake. not real. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, so there's kind of this weird kind of hybrid between, well, we're outdoors and there's this wide angle scope, you know, mm-hmm. this, this broad vistas and horizons, but it's also very clearly not real, almost, almost cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I agree with you 100% that this movie had an abundance of style and a lack of substance. Where I'm going to disagree with you is that I think that is what people like about Wes Anderson's movies is that in spite of all of the style, which you think is kind of the thing, my favorite Wes Anderson movies really get to me mm-hmm. in, in, a, in an emotional and resonant way. I mean, I don't know how much this is really disagreeing or not. I guess, I guess the point I'm making is that, you know, because you, you mentioned that, you know, maybe people just kind of like the style and that's enough. I don't think that's what made him successful. I mean, his style makes him unique. Right. I think people remember him because of his style. But I think that the reason his past movies have worked so well, and I'm thinking about Rushmore, I'm thinking about Royal Tenenbaums. Um, I really liked uh, the uh, Darjeeling Limited, the one about the train trip in India. Mm-hmm. But as stylish as those movies were, and as much as I love the soundtracks and all the crazy cool visuals and stuff, they had these really, really sincere stories at their hearts that connected you mm-hmm. know and these these kind of these family relationships and people kind of patching up old wounds and stuff and and even though everybody like you say everybody's like doing this intentional deadpan delivery they're still saying things and doing things that carry weight and i just didn't get that from this movie it yeah. felt like they were saying and doing things that i either just wasn't following or didn't care about and and you know, there was there was a distinct feeling. I don't know if you felt this way, but I kind of felt like, so is am I just missing something here? Am I just mm-hmm. too dumb to follow the profound nature of what's happening here? Because I'm just not getting anything from any of this. Where right. with Tenenbaums, you have this great story arc with Gene Hackman's character and how he's trying to reconnect with his kids and trying to overcome his just insatiable need to lie and manipulate and deceive, mm-hmm. you know, or, or Rushmore where there's this, this know-it-all kid who is trying to connect with people and trying to be an adult who, who's, who's both wise beyond his years and completely immature mm-hmm. at the same time. And, and those things, those really, really resonated with me, you know? Um, but I didn't get any of that with asteroid city. So I'm not sure if I really disagreed with you. Or not. Yeah. I don't it's think you, just... <laughs> you did because I, I would love to talk about Tenenbaums. I, not only is that my favorite Wes Anderson, it's one of my favorite movies. I, I thought it had so much heart and so much yeah. charm. And it's one of those movies that I've described, like that has the exact perfect combination of humor and pathos, like of like just sad mm-hmm. and really meaningful, impactful moments and just extremely hilarious moments. Almost like, like Forrest Gump or a movie like that where you're like, Mm -hmm. because I was moved basically to tears by the sort of the Ben Stiller confession near the end of the movie to Royal Tenenbaum, to Royal, the the father, you know, but then also there are movies, there are parts in that, there are lines that Royal delivers that are so funny. Um, 
I mean, I think Gene Hackman is, I, that's probably the best character in any Wes Anderson movie for me is, is Royal himself. And yeah, I, I like that. I, and I agree. There's, there's some of this symmetry and other things that you see in other movies. I, the music and even the use of slow motion, I think is much better in Royal uh, Tenenbaums. And, and yeah, but yeah. that's what I was, why I was doing that comparison, like the dead mother scene, like there's the scene where the grandfather mm -hmm. is at the grave, quote unquote grave of, of his daughter and, the grandkids are there. It's way, way, way better in Royal Tenenbaums. The genius kids. I mean, the Stargate, junior stargazers, kind of like the khaki scouts, maybe in Moonrise Kingdom. They're, yeah. they're all, they're very smart, intelligent, you know, precocious kids, and they kind of know it. But there's, the, the, the child prodigy geniuses in Royal Tenenbaums are so much more interesting and fully developed. And really, there are, I guess, yeah. like three of them, but like, it's really Margot and, and the Ben Stiller character. Uh, but, but anyway, I, I just, and maybe that was my problem. Maybe there's just too much comparison for me. And if I looked at, the, at this as just a self-contained, like its own movie, maybe I'd just enjoy it more. Um, I, I just haven't, I feel, I feel like he really hasn't done a great movie in 10 years, maybe. And even I'm trying to think of the last one I really genuinely enjoyed. I, I remember... Isle of Dogs was pretty fun. Um, Moonrise Kingdom was pretty fun. But neither were all-time Wes Anderson movies for me. I still I still go back to... So his first movie was Bottle Rocket. That one was a lot of fun. Uh, Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, I think, are my, my top two for sure. Darjeeling Limited, I liked quite a bit. Um, what about uh, I think I've Fantastic seen most Mr. Of, uh, Fox? That was fun. Yeah. That was a good one. Um, uh, Steve Zissou, uh, Life Aquatic, mm. had some. That was that was pretty good. Uh, see, I am not sure I've actually seen Budapest Hotel all the way through. I know that I haven't seen French Dispatch. Um, the one, so the one caveat I want to throw out, although I'm doubtful, <laughs> is that with both Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums, I had to see both of those movies twice to really start to appreciate them. Mm -hmm. So there's this part of me that wants to say, well, I didn't like Asteroid City the first time I saw it, but maybe seeing it a second time, I'll appreciate it more. Yeah. I don't know. I just don't have the desire to go see it again. I, I agree with and, you. I don't. I don't have a desire to either, and I think I probably would like it more, and I'd probably understand it a little bit better. Like maybe I would tie up some point, you know, two points that I didn't get, or or something. Um, you know, I mean, there, it certainly had its its interesting, funny moments. It had it had some moments in it that that were sure. cool, but uh, I just felt like I wanted it to just to mean something more, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it sounds like, sounds like Asteroid City is a thumbs down for both of us, unfortunately. Yeah. Because I, I was, I was kind of excited about this one. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't horrible. I've definitely seen worse movies. No. I am not, it's not like I'm, this is a turkey, but for me, it's like no. a two out of five star. Well, and before, before we move on, we probably should mention, um, because this is a PG-13 Wes Anderson movie, Oh yeah, uh, but it does have some kind of 
I guess surprising for a PG thirteen movie nudity. Yeah, that it was. I a, mean, it's kind of in the background and it's kind of out of focus. It's but like out of focus in a think, mirror, huh? but it's like this brief, is a PG thirteen movie, right? Brief graphic nudity, which was like completely unnecessary. I mean, uh, there's almost no swearing in the movie. No, really, no violence. Could have been a PG movie, but yeah, yeah. you and I, we, I remember we talked about that. We both sort of lamented about that and complained about it after the movie that it was just not necessary and i i think it uh it was appeal it was an r on appeal um because it was so close but it's officially pg-13 yeah um, well and this is this is not something new for him because wes anderson usually does kind of throw some of these things in his movies but at the same time most of his movies are rated r and so it i guess is logical in that sense Mm -hmm. so this one was a little bit of a surprise so so anyone who does want to go check this out uh, if you have made a habit of seeing his PG-13 movies like Moonrise Kingdom as opposed to his R-rated movies, uh, be aware that this one is pushing that boundary. That's so. right. And it was, yeah, I had read what they had done with the rating. I was trying to see. Uh, well, only way I'll find it. Oh, yeah, it was a. Um, it was initially given an R-rating brief graphic nudity that's what the mpa said yeah and if you notice when even they did the trailer when they the trailer came out there was no rating release as mm. part of the trailer like you didn't know three months ago what it was rated but okay. they focus features who put out the movie they successfully appealed the decision and they got it re-rated to pg-13 so uh, so it's on the line i guess you could say <laughs> so do they think that they're going to make more money with this movie as a pg-13 than an r Oh, that was the other thing I want to mention. I don't think it's going to make any money no matter what. <laughs> right. I, I feel I like, e even in spite of all <laughs> how, how critically acclaimed Wes Anderson is, it, for example, Grand Budapest Hotel um, is his one of his most critically acclaimed movies, maybe behind Real Tenenbaums, and it was his most yeah. successful movie in the box office. Still didn't crack $100 million. And that's his yeah. most successful movie of one of the most well-known directors, at least among yeah. art house people, maybe not among the average film goer. And right. yet... I, I feel like this movie is not, and I could be wrong. We'll see. I just don't think it's going to do well. I side with you. Yeah. I think you're right. Let's move on. So we do have a little bit of an appropriate segue because, you know, we're just talking about a movie and a director who mines a lot of dysfunctional family relationships, but maybe we can use that to transition to some functional family relationships and talk about Father's Day, because we're coming up on Father's Day. We did this for Mother's Day. I thought it would be fun to do the same thing for the dads. Mm -hmm. How about we talk about some of our favorite Father's Day movies? Now, um, I should throw this out at the beginning. Last time, so last month, we talked about some of our favorite movie moms. Instead of just talk about our favorite movie dads, I need to broaden the category a little bit and just say favorite Father's Day movies because one of the movies I want to talk about, the dad isn't really a physically present character, even though he has a huge influence over the movie. Oh my gosh. I wonder if we're going to talk about the same movie. I doubt it. Okay. I highly doubt it. We'll see. <laughs> Because I have a similar there might, one. There might be a, there might be a little overlap. That's fine. Um, so yeah. So so let's uh, let's throw out like our three top, and then of course we'll 
we'll bring up the honorable mentions and all this kind of stuff. Um, this one's not a draft, so no reason to worry about who goes first, but would you like to go first anyway? Sure. Okay. Start us off. All right. Well, when you mentioned that... You, you, technically, I mean, you are a father, so yes. I think it would be more appropriate for you to lead off in this category. <laughs> sure, yeah. Having more life experience in this area than me. So I am a father of five, and um, so I'm, yeah, it's kind of a busy life right now, and uh, ages 11 to 1. Our youngest is about to turn one here in a couple of weeks. Wow. So, um, yeah, I... So movies about fathers, especially with fathers in them or where a father is an important influence in, in the life of a character in a movie, they, they can hit me pretty hard. My first one, I think, is a unique choice because the father in the movie is absent. Um, that's mm -hmm. why I thought maybe we thought of the same movie. This is a movie called Onward. Um, oh, okay. And it's a, uh, it's a Pixar, I believe, movie or Disney. Yeah. Pixar, distributed by Disney, came out in twenty in uh, twenty twenty. Um, this is one of those movies that was sort of lost in COVID. Um, That's right. It came out, I think, right before um, within. It was seriously within a couple weeks of COVID nineteen sort of locking everything down. So it did okay, but then it just couldn't do what it needed to do. And I think in a normal year, it would have done really, really quite well. Because pretty much every Pixar movie did for you know fifteen years in a row, it felt like. Uh, but it's about two. It, it's it's kind of takes place in a, a mythical world where there's mythical creatures and magic is just part of the world. So there's elves and unicorns and dragons and whatever you know, um, centaurs and all kinds of creatures, sort of all living together in a I don't know Zootopia like world uh, and. Um, and they, uh, there's two brothers named Ian and Barley, played by Tom Holland and Chris Pratt. And they are going on a quest to um, basically, there's a spell where their father, who has been out of the picture basically their whole life, especially out of the whole life of one of the brothers, can be sort of re reanimated for 20, a 24-hour period. And it's kind of what motivates the younger brother who didn't know his father at all to go on this quest. Um, and I think it's such a fascinating movie because the director, it's a very personal movie for the director. Um, he uh, had also done Monsters, Monsters, Inc., I believe, but he was inspired to write it because his own father was killed in a car crash when he was very young. And so it's the relationship between his brother was sort of that much more important. His brother was almost a surrogate father for him. And this movie just like got to me, like it really kind of, you know, tugged at the heartstrings, and um, you see throughout the their the relationship with these brothers how they had to sort of step up, and how their mom even kind of had to step up and 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 be there in ways that a father would have been there because he the father wasn't able to be there. The other interesting thing about the movie is as they're casting the spell, and this happens right near the beginning of the movie, um, they're, they're sort of recreating the father and it gets interrupted and they're only able to recreate half of the father. It's the pants on down. So, yeah, right. so a lot of the movie, it's, it, there's quite a bit of comic relief mined from the fact that they're questing with this sort of torso-less, headless figure um, that comes with them that's their father, but only from the pants down and so he can't talk. He, he can't really communicate, at least with any normal 
way that we would communicate with our, you know, hands and face and all that. Um, and yet he has a lot of personality in, in the yeah. movie. So uh, anyway, that's, I, I know it's like not a normal choice. I kind of tried to start out with an oddball choice since the father's uh, not speaking in the movie, but it's the whole reason for the movie's existence in a way is yeah, sort of the absence right. of the, the father and the quest to find uh, or to, to reclaim the father. So yeah, I, I liked Onward quite a bit. And I, I always felt like it's one of those Pixar movies that just slid under the radar. And I, I partially blame it on COVID. I, I mean, it may not have been a huge, huge one, but it was the, the, the timing of the release was unfortunate. No, that's, that's fair to say. I, I will always remember and associate this movie with the beginning of COVID uh, because I want to say that, you know, right before COVID officially landed in the middle of March, I, I took a little spring break road trip down to Southern Utah. And I remember photographing a couple of movie marquees in small towns on the way home and onward was the movie that was playing. Oh, um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I, I have some very fleeting memories of, of that. Um, yeah, that was, and like you say, the idea that the, the father's character just has to be played and interpreted by pants most of the time <laughs> is really fun. It was that's, good, yeah. You, I would say that's probably the best part of the movie is, is kind of that that idea, that element. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so my first Father's Day choice is a movie that I have talked about on the podcast before, so maybe I won't spend a lot of time talking about this one. I think... I want to say that I brought this up as one of my horror movie recommendations um, oh. in a past episode. Uh, this one is Something Wicked This Way Comes, oh, okay. uh, which came out in the early 1980s. It's based on a book by Ray Bradbury, uh, a book I actually reread last year. And the basic idea is about a haunted carnival that comes to a small town in Illinois in, I want to say, the 1920s. Uh, give or take. So, you know, very much a, a period piece, very, very romanticized. Um, I probably said it before, but I think it bears repeating that this, for my money, is the best interpretation of a Ray Bradbury story in film form uh, by far. I, I know that there is a movie of movie version of Fahrenheit 451 to get some accolades. I haven't actually seen that, Hmm. but I'd have a hard time thinking that, for one thing, I'm not as big a fan of the Fahrenheit 451 book. That's the one everybody has to read in in school. Mm -hmm. I I think that's why a lot of people don't like Rick Bradbury is because they had to read this cold political novel uh, instead of embrace kind of his, his more romanticized, nostalgic, you know, creepy, haunted tales. Um, so this one's about, like I say, it's about a, a haunted carnival that comes to town. And what they do is the carnival offers the, the, town's, the town's people their most cherished hopes and dreams, but always at a bitter and sometimes ironic cost. Hmm. Um, so, for example, there is a uh, there is a man who works at the local bar who had been in an accident and he lost an arm and a leg, and so he's you know 
he, he can't get around very well, but he loved sports and he played, he played football in college and, you know, it kind of had dreams of being the, the great athletic hero. And so the carnival offers him the chance to get his arm and his leg back. But after he gets them back, he's turned into a child. And so he's got all four of his limbs, but he's too small to actually hmm. play and succeed at the sport. So there's, so there's always kind of this, yeah, there's well, the we'll catch. Give you this yeah. and then there's a catch. Yeah. So, so very, you know, there's, there's a lot in here about human nature and, and kind of our, the nature of our desires and, and the trade-offs we make and stuff. And, uh, just kind of the, the darkness of it. Um, Jonathan Price plays Mr. Dark, who's the head of the carnival. Just a really, really great, great performance. Um, the reason I said submit this as a Father's Day movie, uh, partially is because my dad, you know, introduced me to Ray Bradbury as a child. And so I will always associate this movie and anything with Ray Bradbury with my dad. Uh, but specifically, uh, the two heroes of the movie are these two, they're about 10, 12 years old, uh, a couple of young boys who are just kind of at that perfect, you know, they're not quite getting into puberty. And so, you know, they really kind of look up to adulthood and, and, you know, the world is kind of big and wondrous. Um, and there's a relationship between one. So, so Will, Will Holloway is one of the main characters, is one of the main kids. And his father, uh, Charles Holloway, is played by Jason Robards. You might know from All the President's Men and various other movies. Really, really fantastic actor. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so he plays kind of this aging father. Uh, he got married late, had had his son Will quite quite late, um, and so there's kind of this additional gap between him and his son that's a little more pronounced than you know the 25 years give or take that you know most most kids have between them and their dads, and uh, in a lot of ways the Charles Holloway character is kind of the main protagonist, uh, even though he's more kind of played to the side. Um, he's kind of the town's librarian. He's, he's also kind of its historian. And so he kind of has to lead the charge against these, uh, these evil people in the carnival. Hmm. Um, and it's just, I don't know, it maybe, maybe it's, it's better to watch than to have me feebly try to describe it, but there's, there is such heart here. And, and, and that's why I really love this as a Ray Bradbury interpretation because, you know, even though he did a lot of science fiction writing, even though a lot of his stuff is very kind of fantastical and all that, it really does have a lot of heart. Just kind of like we were talking about with the best Wes Anderson movies. There's, there's such real substance there. Mm -hmm. And I feel like uh, this movie, which was uh, produced by Disney, it was a Disney production in the early eighties, which was, I think kind of them stepping out of their wheelhouse a little bit. Um, I think this was around the same time they did Watcher in the Woods um, and some more kind of creepy type stuff. Jack Clayton is the director. Um, I'm not really sure what else he's done. But, yeah, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Uh, just a fun movie altogether, but kind of a cool Father's Day one, honestly. Okay. Cool. Well, I um, I you know, I saw that movie a long time ago. I do remember being just completely freaked out by it. I don't remember a lot about it. I think I was quite young when I saw it. Probably remember the tarantulas then, right? I don't. I remember a spinning merry-go-round uh, merry or carousel. Yeah. The, the uh, merry-go-round that if you go forward, it'll it'll make you older. 
Okay. And if you go backwards, it, it rewinds you in time, which okay. is how they turn the guy into the kid. Oh, that's okay. I got it. All right. Well, I Diabolical. am. I, I'm going to pick. So, since it's kind of a horror, I mean, I don't know. Would you classify that as horror? That, that uh, is something yeah. this way comes? Okay. Yeah. So, for me, because um, I don't really have an order, I, I'm going to go with uh, John Krasinski's A Quiet Place. Um, I kind of have this, I'm partial to movies where there's a father who has to protect his family, literally protect sure. them from death, you know, in danger, destruction. And, and I think this is such, I've described this before as probably the best movie I've ever seen about parental anxiety, because like your most core responsibility as a parent is to keep your kids alive, Right. I mean, you got to teach them morals and blah, 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 that other stuff. But you got to keep them alive in order to teach them morals. And um, this movie is just a frightening uh, post-apocalyptic, really survivalist horror film about a family in a farm uh, that live in a world that have been sort of over, that's been overtaken by these creatures. We don't even know really if they're monsters or aliens or whatever, but there are blind but they travel by sight or by sound and then they kill anything that makes sound like they just kill almost indiscriminately well i guess it's discriminately if you make a sound you're dead and so they have to learn to live quietly um they have a deaf daughter uh they have another son and another daughter um and they and she's pregnant and the wife the, the father is played by John Krasinski the the hus, the wife's played by Emily Blunt and they're a real life husband and wife couple so I think that adds also a little element of realism to the movie I guess you could say because you know that they're a real couple and um, of course their kids are not the same and in real life their act their kids are acting but the it's just such a really well-directed suspenseful tense scary movie I saw it with my wife when it came out in the theater and uh, I think it was around 2018. I don't remember, but it was, it was, it was about five years ago. She hated it, of course, because it was so good. <laughs> it's one of those movies I described that because it's so scary and realistic, she just, it's too much for, her, you know, because okay. um, it was, it was, it was like, it was, and, and she hates horror movies and uh, especially movies where like kids are in peril, even like, you know, Jurassic world, you know, it's like, where um, movies are like dinosaurs are terrorizing kids for almost the entire movie and you're just worried about them and she's a mother. And so I just loved A Quiet Place. And, and I love that, obviously, you know, and, and you, th you like to think any father would do this, any father and mother, you know, it's really both of them, um, that they would, they would do whatever it took to keep their kids safe, you know, uh, and to, to keep them safe from the, the terrors of the world. And so I, and obviously we're not, we're not faced with like these, um, you know, sightless killing machines in our, in our world today, but there's many other things that can, can get at our kids today. And, and luckily as parents, you know, uh, parents, you know, who are listening, we don't have to put our, our lives on the line, uh, you know, almost every day for our kids. But I think the point is that we would, we would, if we had to, if we were faced with such yeah. a decision. And I just have never seen it depicted more beautifully, I believe, than in this movie. And um, Life is Beautiful, which is the, the, you know, the Holocaust sort of comedy drama mm -hmm. fable that is probably my favorite movie of all time. I didn't really put that on my list because I feel like I've talked about that you know, a, a dozen times. I don't really need to talk about it again. But 
there are some similarities between a quiet yeah. place and life is beautiful. Um, it's not that it, I guess life is beautiful. He really part of what he has to do is sort of lie, create this deceit to protect his son. And in a quiet place, there's not really any lying. It's just everybody knows we got to be quiet. In fact, you do whatever you can to like keep the kids quiet. Um, but yeah, it's it's just sort of the basic core. Like, what does a father need to do to protect kids, uh, yeah. protect his children? Kind of movie, and and I like the sequel quite a bit too, which I had to go see with my brother-in-law because Holly was done with those kind of movies. <laughs> you know, I don't know that I can think of a movie I have seen that inspired more tension in the audience than that first Quiet Place. I. Yeah. Because of a scheduling conflict, I missed the press screening. Yeah. And so when I saw it, I just saw it at just kind of a regular, you know, evening, just a bunch of, just kind of a regular movie crowd. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the kind of situation where people could feel free to chat and to look at their phone and to do all kinds of annoying things. And everyone in that theater was locked in and silent. That's it how it was awesome. That's it how was it was awesome. at our screening too. And the thing yeah. is, because it's the the sound design of the movie is based all around quiet, quietude, quietness. I guess you could say, <laughs> you have to be locked into the movie. You almost can't yeah. help but be yeah. locked in. You right. don't want to miss even the slightest sound because you know that the moment there's a sound in the movie, the characters are in peril. Like they're in yeah. danger and, and, and it happens in the movie. I mean, there's plenty of times where a sound accidentally happens or they have to create a sound on purpose as a distraction or, and yeah, I agree with you. I, I hadn't seen a, a crowd that riveted. Um, we were, I think we were in a full showing. We even saw some people in our, in our neighborhood there too. And, and it was like, we're wondering like, are they feeling the same thing we are? I mean, it was too much for, for, for Holly, but I loved yeah. it. I, I was, I had similar feelings during like, uh, you know, 10 Cloverfield Lane or, you know, other kind of horror movies that I kind of wish they made more of. Um, this is yeah. one reason I happily went to the sequel of this movie. Well, and that's that's the kind of movie that makes me want to say I am a horror movie fan. Mm -hmm. It's all the other ones that make me think, okay, so am I really a horror movie fan? Because right. there's just so much junk. So much garbage. But when they do it right, oh, horror movies can be so good. Mm -hmm. So good. Okay, I'm going to take a dramatic left turn. Um, and I'm going to share the movie that inspired me to say this has to be a Father's Day movie movie, and not a favorite dad's movie. Favorite movie dad's, I guess, list. Um, and this is a movie that is kind of derided, was seen as a kind of a flop and still not really beloved. And I kind of know why. Um, this is a movie, I actually have shown this to friends a couple on a couple of different occasions. And it was kind of one of those embarrassing, like if you ever showed a movie to a friend, excited for them to see it, and then you kind of realize, oh, it's not this as not good as over well. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's I, just not as good as I, yeah. That's a pretty sinking feeling. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so I'm going to have to explain this one and, and it's not, it's not rationalization because I think that this movie has 
some really, really spectacular parts that I will always adore while knowing that there are some other bits that just are kind of awkward and painful. And so this one is a little bit of a challenge. Um, we've talked about Ca uh, Cameron Crowe previously in our podcast, talking about Almost Famous, I believe. Um, this, I'm not sure if this was the next one. I don't think it was the next one after Almost Famous, but Elizabeth Town came out in 2005. Mm. And it is primarily a romantic comedy that gets Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst together. Orlando Bloom is a up-and-comer in a shoe company. And he's designed this big shoe, some kind of athletic trainer shoe, and it flops. And it's this huge, huge loss. It's kind of supposed to be Nike. Like, he's up in the Pacific Northwest, but they don't really say Nike. And right after this thing flops, um, he finds out that his dad died. Mm. And so in his grief, um, which frankly is pretty much suicidal level grief, um, he flies across the country, he flies from the West Coast out to Kentucky. And he goes out there to reunite with his father's side of the family. Um, his dad grew up in Kentucky, then you know got married to his mom and moved out to the West Coast. And so in the process... The, uh, he meets Kirsten Dunst's character who plays a stewardess, a flight attendant on his, you know, red eye flight to get out to Kentucky and she lives in the area. And so in the process of kind of going through this whole, you know, coordinating the funeral plans and interacting with his family members, he's also has this burgeoning relationship with Kirsten Dunst that kind of, forms the romantic comedy side of the equation. So I think that there are some real struggles with the romantic side of the romantic comedy here. Um, some scenes between he, between Orlando Bloom and Kirsten Dunst that they just kind of struggle. They're just kind of awkward. Hmm. Um, and like I said, when you're, when you're watching it with a friend who hasn't seen it for the first time and you're kind of watching it through your eyes, through their eyes, you realize, Ooh, yeah, okay, maybe this isn't, yeah, okay. But I love this movie and will always love this movie because of the way they handle the other part of the story, which is Orlando Bloom basically trying to connect with a group of people that he is related to but doesn't know, doesn't understand, has never really dealt with at all. And he's kind of connecting to his father's past and his father's roots and I love it. It's so cool because, mm. you know, he kind of comes from a more kind of uptight, you know, West Coast kind of background. And and all of these these family members are much more kind of down to earth, you know, the Southern hospitality because they're, you know, they're just outside of Louisville. And there's just this great vibe. You know, they, it really brings the area to life. The it's, This is one of those movies where the setting really kind of has its own personality, almost kind of plays its own character. And in even though the dad isn't there, like you see his body a couple of times because, you know, it's I think that there's like a 
of viewing or something like that. The relationship, it's, it's kind of Orlando Bloom's character is almost getting to know his father in a way that he has never understood him before. You know, this, it's kind of like, now that I know where you've come from, I understand who you are and mm. so much more of what, what you are and what I've encountered makes sense. I'm connecting the dots and, you know, and this, this isn't really kind of like the, the crux of the plot. So this is not really a major spoiler, but later in the movie, he winds up doing this kind of road trip thing that's connected to his father. And it's just so, so great. Mm. And, and, um, Cameron Crowe, Always, I mean, there are a lot of things about his movies, even his lesser movies, frankly, that I've always really, really loved. And one of the things he always does so well is he really has a great ear for for soundtracks yeah. and, and adding music. And Elizabethtown is absolutely part of that. There are some really fantastic songs and, and tracks in here. Uh, one of the songs that gets repeated is uh, Elton John's uh, My Father's Gun. Which you'd almost kind of have to say is the the flip side of them using uh, Tiny Dancer in Almost Famous. Oh, okay. Um, I guess Elton John's just really good that way. But uh, yeah, so so if you see this movie, I have to caution you because the the romance love story side of it is not the best. Hmm. You kind of have to get through it at times. Okay. Um, I don't know. You could you could call it miscasting. You could call it bad bad performances. You could call it misguided. You know, poor directing. Whatever. I don't know. The writing. Who knows? But if you're focusing on and trying to connect with the idea of someone learning about their parents by getting to know where they came from and the people they came from, that is so cool. Hmm. I just love it. I'm gonna have to see that. We we have the movie. That's one of the movies that that my you wife do. has. That I I know it's on DVD, but I've never seen it. Well, um, I remember have no it. No excuse. Well, yeah, I should see it. <laughs> I I uh, just haven't gotten around to that. It's a bit of a blind spot. Um. Okay, so my next movie is a chance for me to talk about. So I, I started uh, coming on the, the podcast in, I think it was in November of 2021. And so I hadn't really gotten a chance to talk about this movie because when I first saw it, it was, it, I saw it in 2020 when it came out or okay. maybe right around the beginning of 2021. And it was my favorite movie of the year. Um, oh. And so I figured I might as well talk about it now. And I, I'm going to, because I feel like it's better what I what I actually wrote when I saw. I'm going to share some of that. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll hold some suspense here, so I'm not going to tell yeah. you what it was. Especially if it's a movie from 2020, because 2020 sucks. It's not a good year. I know, I know. And you've and already I, pulled a movie from 2020 on your list. I did. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Onward. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Roger Ebert said that movies are great empathy machines. Nowhere is this better illustrated than in The Father. Anthony Hopkins plays a man suffering from dementia, and writer-director Florian Zeller deftly puts you in his shoes. Experiencing dementia as Anthony, also his character's name does, is at first confusing, then downright disorienting, then frustrating. Have you ever watched a movie, become so baffled by the plot or elements of the story, and then angrily questioned why you could not understand it? See, e.g. Tenet. You remember. Did you feel that way during Tenet? Anyway, I did. Yes. 
Yes. Now, imagine that this is your whole life. You may eventually realize that the problem isn't life itself, but you. It reminds me of, of and I, I have experienced this in my own uh, life as an attorney, sometimes clients believe everyone is against them, judges, attorneys, therapists, custody evaluators. More likely, the problem lies within. Although I cannot truly understand how dementia must feel, this movie must come frighteningly close to generating that sensation. It helps you see the disease's ravages through the dutiful daughter's eyes. Anne, played by the great Olivia Colman, steadily tries to persuade her father to accept help. It's not easy. He's stubborn. He remains difficult to convince. By its nature, people with dementia seem unaware of its effects on them, or perhaps its very existence in their lives. Anne is in over her head despite her best intentions. Watch how she grows exasperated while correcting Anthony, arguing with him gently over basic facts. Anthony is alive and charming at times, but Olivia's tears reveal that she is in mourning. The father she has known her whole life is dead. Perhaps the gradual grief one experiences when a loved one descends into dementia is no less disquieting than the sorrow for loss of life. The pain for death is more acute, more abrupt, but both are immense. And then I talked about in, the, in my written review how I lost both of my grandparents the month before I saw this movie. So I guess I did see this oh, wow. in August of 2021. I lost my grandma Larocco and my grandpa Wilson. Very interesting because they're not related to each other, but they died five days apart. They were wow. both in their 90s. But I noted that some of some might say that we were already losing them weeks or even months before they died. They just weren't the same people. You know, like my grandma would say words I couldn't understand. You could shout words at her and she could barely hear them in the last few weeks or months of her life. Um, my grandpa was one of the most talkative men I ever met. And in the last few years of his life, he really couldn't talk. He just kind of would sit there and sort of be there and kind of be present. Um, but you could not have a real conversation with him for a while. And I thought about Anthony, Anthony Hopkins and Anthony, the character in the movie. Um, he was confused, disoriented, frustrated. And what, what is next after you reach those stages? Is it acceptance? Um, is it you know, ultimately there's empathy. And there was a scene at the end of this movie which just completely moved me to tears. And I don't want to spoil it. I don't know if, you know, people haven't seen it yet. I don't, there were a lot of 2020 movies I think that people missed. Um, but it, there was a combination of sympathy and empathy that really helped convey to me how, how like truly hard it must be to live with dementia. And I found it interesting, um, a little side note in this movie that a movie doesn't have to be loud, fast, action-packed to hold your attention. I've, I've actually ha had the opposite effect in movies. I've fallen asleep during like high action thriller movies before that were just um, supposed to be adventure movies, but just kind of grew bland maybe with the amount of CGI action. And this movie was a very quiet, um, evenly paced movie. Um, and it was disorienting because when it lets, when the movie allows you to see the world through Anthony's eyes, there are times where characters change, names change. You don't quite know, understand because the director, Florian Zeller, kind of wants you to have a little taste of dementia. And it's hard. That's why I think, like, I agree with Roger Ebert's line about how movies are great empathy machines. Empathy machines. That's how this, this movie is. Um, and in terms of our, uh, and when, you know, Holly and I were both watching it, I think, we kind of thought, uh, she thought maybe it'd be boring. And within minutes, we were both just glued to the screen till the very end. And it was late. It, we were finishing this movie after midnight. Um, I think that in terms of the father part of it, and obviously the title is The Father. I mean, that's, 
a giveaway of what it's about. But instead of a father having to be there or take care of a child or take care of a family or provide for a family, this is more the other way around. You know, this is after a life of providing and caring for kids. What can the kids or the children then give back to the father? And what kind of sacrifices do they have to make? And, and I, I imagine it must be painful to have to watch somebody go through, a, a, you know, this, these sort of life-changing and life-altering uh, diseases like dementia to where the father that you once knew is just not the same person. It's not the father you've known your whole life. I saw another movie similar to this called Still Alice with um, oh, Julianne wow. Moore. yeah. That was, was such a... It was very sad. It's just hard to watch, especially in the way her husband kind of treated her, which was understandable, but uh, it was a guy played by Alec Baldwin. Um, but in, in this movie, like, yeah, it's, it's you know, you take care, of, take care of a father or you take care of a grandfather or a grandmother, and, um, and uh, it's just part of what some families have to do, you know? And, um, and anyway, I, I thought it was just a, a brilliant movie yeah very sad uh, i guess not very sad but you know definitely worth watching and i just there wasn't any movie i really liked better in that year and like you said a lot of movies were deferred they were going to release movies in 2020 and yeah they got pushed back so we had a kind of an interesting slate of like oscar nominees that year for example mm -hmm. like the trial of the chicago seven which is basically kind of felt like a tv movie in some ways um this one was one that won a few oscars it did win best actor uh, for Anthony Hopkins, which was a surprise win. Everybody thought Chadwick Boseman would win. Yeah. Um, no, I, I remember that. I remember that specific. So I haven't, I haven't seen The Father, but I will always remember it winning the Oscar because it was the most anticlimactic, just kind of mic drop moment <laughs> where, where they deliberately, I mean, unlike every other broadcast I've ever seen, Instead of finishing with best picture, they right. decided to finish with best actor because, just like you said, they, they thought, it, would thought be... it was going to be Chadwick Boseman. Right. And instead, not only is it not Chadwick Boseman, it's but a... it's the guy who's not even there. He wasn't even there. He couldn't even do a taped speech. He did one later yep. on Instagram. Yep. And it yeah. was just roll credits and let's get out of here. That was it the was awkward. funniest thing <laughs> Oh my goodness! And I was happy. I was glad that he won. <laughs> I was I was so in favor of it. But I don't. Well, actually, I guess I hadn't. No, I hadn't seen it at that point. I hadn't seen The Father when I watched okay. the Oscars. But okay. but I was like, yeah, if that's the best actor, that's great. You know, like I'm I'm happy for him. Oh, but it was wow. funny that he wasn't there. He did release a, a video the next day on Instagram. That was really nice. In fact, he mentioned. I think he mentioned. Uh, Chadwick Boseman in his speech like I thought yeah. he would win um but God. anyway <laughs> I I thought it was great and it's funny because you think of his his other Oscar winning performance which is Silence of the Lambs completely different characters yep. you know like it couldn't be more different range. <laughs> <laughs> okay um so my my last choice before we uh throw out a few honorable mentions and wrap this thing up uh, this is a movie that, as I have kind of paid attention, seems to be, I don't know if I would describe it as a cult following, but I hear it referenced quite regularly now. And I think that even though I don't remember it being particularly big when it came out, 
I think that a lot of people have grown to really like this one. Um, this is another Richard Curtis movie. Richard Curtis is a guy who did uh, Love Actually, a lot of those kind of movies. Very, very British, you know, British humor, kind of dry, romantic, mm -hmm. quirky movies. Um, 2013, About Time, is a movie he did with uh, Donald Gleason and Rachel McAdams are kind of the romantic comedy couple. Um, Rachel McAdams plays an American uh, who is in England. Donald Gleason uh, plays a guy named Tim. And I think, I can't remember, you know, maybe somebody who's a diehard fan can correct me on this. Uh, so, so Tim discovers upon reaching, I can't remember if it was his 21st birthday or whatever, but all of the men in his family have the ability to travel in time. And, you know, speaking of time travel, we were talking about it earlier, this has got to be one of the most deadpan versions of a time travel movie I've ever seen. Just in terms of like, it's not played up as like this big, oh, well, let's step in, let's get in the DeLorean and hit 88 miles per hour. It's, no, just go in the closet and close your eyes and think real hard and you'll travel in time. Like it's, it's really. Wait, what's, what's the name of the movie? About Time. Oh, I've heard good things about that. My so, Errol Tyker yeah, loves that. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. So I, so Bill Nye Bill Nye, who is one of my absolute all-time favorite actors, he plays Tim's dad. Mm -hmm. And so he takes him aside and says in his in the way that only he can, he basically tells his son that, Oh, you know, by the way, all of the men in our family can travel through time. So be careful, you know, don't don't screw anything up, but uh, you know, there you go. And so he, uh, of course, of all the different things he could do, he decides that he needs to, uh, uh, that, that Tim could do, he decides he needs to fix his love life. And so he, he starts like backtracking and trying to correct faux pas on dates and, you know, stupid things he says at parties and, oh, I missed a chance to kiss this girl at New Year's. And so I'm going to go back and make sure that I kiss her and this kind of thing. And this process uh, connects him with Mary, who's uh, Rachel McAdams' character. And they start kind of going through their, their ups and downs. And there's, there's a lot of kind of regular kind of romantic comedy stuff. But it's got this added kind of funny element of, you know, Tim periodically going back in time to correct things and to make sure that, you know, things stay on track. Um, so I love not just the relationship between Donald Gleason and Bill Nye's characters, but the plot towards the end of the movie comes to this heartbreaking moment that such, in such a perfect way captures a, a resonant father-son relationship. And I, I kind of want to I really do want people, I, w I really do want to recommend this movie. And so I don't want to give too much away. I'll just have to, I'll try to talk around it as much as I can. Over the course of the movie, Tim realizes that even though he is free to jump back and forth in time and make changes, if he jumps back or around certain kinds of events, and I'm not going to specify what kinds of events, that other more critical changes can occur that might be more consequential and 
this leads to some really heartbreaking decisions because it, it, basically what it comes down to is, okay, well, if I want to correct item number one, I'm going to have to sacrifice item number two. Mm-hmm. And making that decision leads to multiple instances of just really, really sweet, heartrending, just the kind of movements, the, 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 sorry, the kind of moments that really just kind of get to you. And, and one of them just absolutely made me love the whole father-son dynamic. And I would almost say was a big part of the inspiration behind, yeah, let's do a Father's Day movie list because I want to talk about this movie. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm tempted, maybe, I don't know, maybe once you see it, yeah, I'll, we I'll can do, we, let's, let's do a, a full-on spoiler alert discussion because mm-hmm. I would be interested to talk to you about your reaction to this movie when you know okay. what vague things I am trying to talk my way around <laughs> okay. right now. Say no more. About I time. I, I know. It's one of the problems is when you start telling people there's a spoiler, just like when you tell people there's a twist, yeah. you can still try to avoid saying it, but then they figure it out. Like when you know that a movie has a twist ending, sometimes yeah. you just figure it out as opposed to not knowing there's a twist and then just discovering it like cold, Mm -hmm. you know, fresh. It's like, Oh wow. That was cool. Yeah. I I get you though. I I do want to see it. I want to see that movie. Cool. Um, Okay. Well, we're pushing an hour and a half. So you want to rip off a couple of quick honorable mentions? Yeah. I just wanted to say uh, a few others that I thought were interesting movies and discussion of fathers. I did mention life is beautiful. Um, in honor of what we're seeing tomorrow, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. First time yep. you really get Indy's father in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Royal Tenenbaums, which we actually have talked about today a, a little bit. Yep. Um, the Godfather Part Two, which Ooh. I think is just a grand sweeping epic, like Shakespearean tragedy about fathers and their impact on families. And, and, and the thing I like about that, as opposed to the first movie, is it's not linear. It goes back in time with the, mm-hmm. the stories of young Vito Corleone and then and then Michael Corleone as he's taken over the throne um and uh and then oh to kill a mockingbird Atticus Finch maybe one of the best fathers in a movie that you'll see at least in terms of the example he sets not directly like fathering you know with his children but nice nice well um so you mentioned Last Crusade so I only officially have one more movie on my honorable mention list which is the same movie that I mentioned as an honorable mention on my movie Mom's List, which is Mr. Mom. So, oh, that's a good one. <laughs> got a, another shout out to Michael Keaton. Uh, if you haven't seen Mr. Mom, it is so fun. It, <laughs> it is, is such a good movie. Oh, sincerely. And 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 speaking of shout outs, since it's Happy Father's Day to to my dad, he did. I hadn't had him send me his favorite movies. There's a lot in there, but I'll just give you his top five. It's a Wonderful Life, Life Is Beautiful, West Side Story, The Sound of Music, and Forrest Gump. Two that were on my mother's top five, so hmm, they must have some things in common. They must have been meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, if you are still with us, then you either are a dedicated and passionate listener to the Utah Film Pod, or maybe you fell asleep partway through and are just waking up now. Um, either way, we're grateful to have you with us, grateful to have you take your time to hear us out. Please get in touch if you have ideas for future topics or movies you'd like us to review or discuss. Um, If you haven't already, please give us a follow, a like, 
we got more stuff to come in the weeks to come. And until then, be excellent to each other. Take care.